Big data is often thrown around as a buzzword, but if you're trying to quantify all of the data around homes in the entire United States and pair that with hard to quantify information such as images, you have a real big data problem on your hands. And that's what Zillow deals with on a day-to-day basis. This week in the Tech Emergence podcast, we interview Dr. Stan Humphreys, who is Chief Analytics Officer and Chief Economist for the Zillow Group. Stan speaks with us this week around where at Zillow are they leveraging machine learning and artificial intelligence and a quick hint almost everywhere. Uh, And secondly, what he believes to be some of the keys for deriving real ROI from applying machine learning and AI. This is a company that was really founded on applied data science and Stan offers a lot of insights for how other companies can model the successful decision-making processes and implementation strategies that Zillow has used themselves. So Stan, I think most people are familiar with Zillow. If they've been moving to a new place or interested in a neighborhood or what have you, Zillow is about as good as it gets for, you know, checking out homes for for sale and rent. But I I don't think many people, myself included, are all that familiar with how AI or machine learning is part of what you guys do. Where does that play a role at Zillow? Yeah, so, you know, machine learning has really been pretty integral to Zillow's value proposition and kind of internal business operations really from the very beginning. Zillow you know, back when we started in 2005 and launched a website in 2006, you know, our initial offerings were really around valuations on homes, which we call Zestimates, yep. and then a housing index that we wanted to create down to very small areas like zip codes and neighborhoods as opposed to what was available at that time, which was something like a Case-Shiller index, which was only available at a metro level. So we wanted to create these really granular data products that really from the, from the outset required enormous amounts of data and a lot of computational power and statistical machine learning modeling in order to create those uh, those products, uh, the assessment itself, and then these housing indices, uh, and then really from from that you know those early days, the application of machine learning and artificial intelligence technologies has you know continued to infiltrate every part of our business. Where you know we're involved in machine learning for you know classical problems like personalization, recommendation technology, content personalization. Um, is an area where we're looking, uh, where we made significant investments uh, involving machine learning to things like uh, marketplace dynamics. How do we structure the marketplace and what we're selling our products to? How we target our products to professionals? You know, there's a lot of machine learning mm. that goes on there to, you know, areas like, you know, various products. Where if you look at what we've done at Home Improvement with uh, the Zillow product, which is called Digs, where we actually estimate uh, in the Digs marketplace we will show different home improvement projects and we'll estimate the cost for doing that home improvement project. That's all based on construction of a supervised data set from experts who were involved in those projects, but then applying machine learning to that labeled supervised, that labeled data set in order to create estimates for projects that experts haven't weighed in on for an estimate for how much we think it would take to repeat that home improvement project. So really machine learning gets used is, is ubiquitous at this point. Um, and it's you know it's across the gamut from deep learning kind of convolutional neural networks to things involving support vector machines and decision trees and random forest, uh, you know. So uh, we're a voracious user of <laughs> yes um, of, of data. Vor- voracious. Uh, well, yeah. You again, as you had mentioned, your your core value prop is a data product. I mean, we're talking about you know image data. We're talking about pricing data. We're talking about square footage. A lot of quantifiable stuff. Uh, and, and certainly a lot of labor in moving that around. You had brought up a couple of functionalities I was com- uh, completely unaware of. When you mention the uh, like your your estimates for home values in certain areas that are more granular than let's say a county or a zip code per per chance, 
is is that drawing from? I'm, I'm just pointing at different individual facets of the business um, and, and just kind of teasing it out. Is that something that is informed by a machine learning or AI process when we're making kind of home estimates for those granular areas you were talking about? Yeah. So that that process starts, you know, is really the foundational aspect of that is the property level home valuations themselves, which are mark, you know, on, on the website you would see as a estimate. Yep. That is a deeply a big data machine learning, um, in some cases, are almost artificial intelligence-like process where kind of the innovation that we brought to the space in 2005 was up to that time, generally, approaches to valuing homes had been, you know, put a bunch of statisticians in a room, have them come up with a very complex model, which was generally for either very large geography or for a longer period of time because it required, you know, it was really more, more art than science. Because you were having statisticians had to kind of handcraft these models, yep. innovation that we brought to the, to the space in 2005 was really to to say, well, let's not do that. Instead, let's have you know a bunch of machine learning models that run on you know much smaller levels of geography, and um, have them learn the patterns in that in that smaller level of geography and uh, make predictions. And got it. Uh, you know at that at that time, if you if you think about the scale of what we were doing back in 2006, we had about um, say 40,000 statistical models that were being created to produce about 43 million home value estimates. Uh, today, that scale has grown. So we've got about, I think, seven and a half million statistical models, uh, machine learning models, largely, that are developed every single night in order to value about 100 million homes. And then those 7.5 million machine learning models are thrown away immediately after they've scored all the homes, created all those estimates. And we do the whole process again the following night. And, you know, that process consumes, that nightly process consumes, I think, currently about 25 terabytes of data, yeah. um, you know, and is a, a, an enormously kind of parallelized big data problem. You, you could, you could cook your breakfast on those computers, man. That's a, that's, that's a serious nightly ordeal. So when you're looking at, you know, I've, I've been on Zillow before when I'm looking at prices varying, you know, month over month, or maybe it's more granular than that, I'm not sure, for a specific home, whether it's in Montana or the Berkshire Mountains or what have you, we don't have an individual fellow hopping into each home and, and making those adjustments. We're looking at meta trends. We're looking at uh, adjusted real home prices and their alterations and maybe functioning in seasonality. And those are kind of the ongoing predictive processes behind all of the values, if I'm hearing you correctly. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what's behind the, the seven and a half million machine learning models and statistical models that I described is that basically what the algorithm is doing is every single night it's taking in new price signals from transactions that have uh, that have closed or from listings that have occurred on the market uh, during that day, and it is then kind of parceling. It's, it's breaking the country up into smaller micro regions, and then it is training, and where micro regions are a small subset of homes, and it is then training a, a number of models within that micro region. So, the, and what this estimate really is, is it's an ensemble model of a lot of these sub models. Uh, and once the sub models are created at the micro region, there's another set of, of, of models that are, which are called meta models, which are taking those sub model um, outputs, those opinions of value from the sub models and creating the best consensus opinion for the value of the home. And those sub models are a variety of really it's a, think of a sub model as a combination of a machine learning technique and a particular approach to valuing homes, be that geospatial or what's called hedonic, which is using the home facts or a prior sale price or a tax assessment. You know, it's a, that's an approach to deriving value for a home. Any one of those approaches is paired with a machine learning a, a classifier. 
be it a decision tree or support vector machine or a neural network, and that creates a submodel. And there are lots of submodels for every microregion and creating opinions of value for each home. And then those multiple values for each home are reconciled into a final number, which is the estimate. So it, it is a it is a you know classic big data problem. Yeah, and it, it actually sounds to me as though that same approach would be rather valuable in a lot of other domains. I mean, just imagining sort of other applications in e-commerce or otherwise, there's always, you know, a more than one way to skin a cat in terms of how you come up with your prediction. And it sounds as though you are coming up with many predictions based on many models and sort of uh, types of ways of developing those predictions and then coming up with an amalgam of those to sort of come That's out right. with whatever the final price is, which is curious, uh, but but makes a lot of sense because you can see how, what, you know, tax estimate, geospatial, you're going to come out with different answers and there's probably a way to to weigh different ones at different weights in, in different areas, depending on the circumstance. So uh, interesting. The other, uh, quickly, just to, to flesh out Zillow before we move on to some of the insights you've gained in sort of implementing these processes over the last 10 years. The other thing that you'd brought up, and I, I was unaware of this, is something to do with home improvement through Zillow. You mentioned digs or some functionality like that, where people can say, hey, what would it cost if I wanted to get a new roof on this thing? Because I'm looking at it. I like it. I like the location. But we totally need a new roof. Or I'd be putting tile in everything, you know, in the kitchen, counters and all. I would be getting rid of this hardwood. See you later. Um, you you have some degree of machine learning being applied to those projects as well. I didn't know if those two specifics were too far out or if it was maybe more limited than that. But, you know, roofs, floors, where does this apply? Yeah, so it's it's within the Zillow Digs product, and most of those projects are both interior and exterior. So, both, okay. but, you know, a classic example would be a photo for a home improvement that was done in a kitchen where you put in new countertops yes. and new appliances and everything else. And that photo is, uh, you know, how it kind of starts is we have you know, experts, contractors who kind of who, who look at that image and say, well, for me to create a kitchen like that, you know, here's the rough size of it, and I see the materials that are being used and the finishes. This is what it would cost to create that, that project, and that creates a, a data set which, which we have, which we've curated, that tells us the the cost for that home improvement project. Uh, what's then done is we can that creates a labeled data set, which then creates a great data set for supervised learning, where we can then apply machine learning to new images that come in where yeah. where the contractors have not applied that expert opinion. But what's being done is that we're teasing out of the images what are the finishes and what's the size of this room and and uh, and what type of room is it? Is it a kitchen, a bedroom, a bathroom, whatever? And that machine learning is then making an inference based on the labeled data set that it had to during training to produce a model, which is then used for scoring images that contractors haven't yet seen. I, I find this fascinating. So, so if I have an upstairs bathroom... Um, which maybe is more expensive to do than a downstairs, depending on how much stuff these guys have to schlep around. Um, my, my father used to run a, a carpet and tile business, so I'm familiar with what a tear up looks like, and uh, you know what you have to put down under your rugs and yada yada. Well, if I have an upstairs bathroom and there's an image of it, and it has a, a nice long counter with two sinks uh, in a, in a master bathroom or something like that, hypothetically, the, what has to be teased out of these images is how much square space are we dealing with in terms of uh, you know, this particular counter, how much does this material cost? Um, how hard is it to get that stuff to that room in the house? Potentially, it sounds like there's a lot of considerations that would have to go into purely visual data, like finding the, the imagined square footage of a counter by itself from pictures is, is relatively impressive. 
That's correct. Yeah. So, and that, that is, you know, there is a combination of things that are happening. So there is some crowdsourcing. There are some images for which humans will need to define, like you will have to define an edge yes, uh, yes. To, to rooms to allow a measurement to then be taken. So it's a combination of crowdsourcing for some basic kind of tagging um, with machine learning that can then take those tags and then can use, can parse out of those images other types of information to then make an estimate. That's that's wild. Yeah, and I imagine uh, to some degree, again, you need people, you know, you mentioned your supervised learning sort of aspect, but maybe even in the interim, that crowdsourcing sounds like it would be handy. Hopefully, though, you could use, again, those inferences too. You know, when, when if you have crowdsourced folks, you know, successfully tag, flag, identify all these various features in, you know, 40,000 homes, hopefully that, that could be leveraged to train your machines to pick up on counters faster, to pick up on distances faster. Uh, etc. So um, it sounds like that could kind of be part of the same virtuous cycle. That's correct. And I mean, you know, obviously, uh, you know, you know, one of the hottest areas right now for kind of machine learning in academia, and, you know, quickly being adopted within within industry is deep learning, where you are, you know, particularly deep learning applied to image data, where we are asking machines, you know, computers to tease, to look at the pixels and find structures in the pixels, which are correlated to signal. And that is, you know, is going to be extraordinarily powerful uh, for particularly real estate applications where images, when you think about what we've done with valuations, right now we have, you know, the most accurate uh, home, you know, automated valuation models, you know, available. If, if you want an estimate for a home, we will have the most accurate uh, prediction for what that home will sell for. Um, we're currently at about 6% median absolute percent error nationally. Um, so that's an extraordinarily good um, estimate of home value. What's left is really more of these qualitative features, which are really hard. It's not in the structured data. It's not in the square footage no, and the no, number no. of bedrooms. It's in the c- condition and the finishes of the home, and that's all contained in image data. And um, so that's certainly something that, as deep learning evolves and matures, is going to be a hot area and you know, a great way to, to make estimates even more accurate. Yeah, to tease out those qualitative elements that right now you cannot dump into a spreadsheet very easily. Um, That's right. W- with that, with that being said, uh, lastly, Stan, as we wrap, uh, I'm interested in some of your takeaways on kind of how to glean ROI from machine learning. For many development teams, maybe this is a a new domain for them. I know there's probably folks working at maybe bigger companies are interested in implementing this where it hasn't been in the past. What's some of your advice for really teasing out proper return on investment? from artificial intelligence uh, in, in industry? When I talk to other companies that are, you know, gearing up in this space and, you know, Zillow was, you know, from our outset, we were, you know, our, our business problem was really one of big data and, mach- and machine learning. So yeah. we, and, and I think in our DNA, most of kind of the founding team, we're extremely, you know, data driven. And, and I think that's when I talk to other companies that are trying to, to move uh, and gear up in this space, I, I do detect that's a big differentiator is kind of how, you know, how data-driven is the organization? Um, and it takes a pretty data-driven organization, I think, to be really successful at this because, you know, organizations that are used to, you know, they, they, they think they understand a problem really well via traditional means, sometimes there can be a lot of resistance to, to machine learning where sometimes the results of that machine learning are not entirely intuitive with the traditional ways of understanding a problem. And you have to have a real ability, I think, as a leadership team to say, you know, we don't, you know, we're not beholden to any traditional way of thinking about this problem. Instead, we're entirely empirically driven. And whatever the data 
you know, points to, that's where we're, we're, we're going to go with these problems. So I think there's a kind of real data orientation to the leadership team, which is yeah. really important. It also really does require, and I, you know, it's hard to under, it's hard to overemphasize this. It takes a real investment of resources. Of uh, you know, these are you know, honestly, the hottest job descriptions. Yep. You know, no, it's, out it's there. tough. You look There's at a, yeah. engineers to take in big data that are working with Spark and Hadoop and highly distributed uh, systems, and then the data scientists who then take that data once they're in the systems and, and can apply, think about a business problem in an analytic perspective, and then go pull data to solve that problem. Those are very highly you know, in demand skill sets. And it takes a big investment to put a team together um, oh, yeah. that is able to operate in that space. And I would say also there, there's a real, I, I noticed there's a difference in organizations where sometimes they, it, it's hot right now to say you're in big data and you're going to apply data science and machine learning to problems. Um, I think that sometimes companies approach it like they would, um, it's almost more of a marketing campaign as opposed to the data scientists and the analytic um, talent within your company, they need to be present in conversations that are integral to the business. And it can't be, you know, a conversation among a business team without any analysts involved. And at some point that business team said, hey, you know what, I think this might be a, a problem for a data scientist. I, that's just, I, mm. I rarely see that work because instead the analytic people have to be in that conversation because oftentimes they're able to say, um, you know what, actually there's an empirical way to work through this problem and, and let's try to tackle it that way. Going the other way, I think that sometimes there's a crisis of imagination that can occur where uh, people may not know what's possible, and therefore they may not say, hey, this is a data science or a big data problem, and they don't go that way because they're not, they're not analytic people. So you need to have analytic people involved with those business leaders as partners who are then able to say, this is a machine learning problem, and let's go tackle it. Um, otherwise, I think there's, if there's an arm's length relationship, it just doesn't work as well. I, I, you know, my, one of my favorite quotes that kind of illustrates this, I think, is the one from uh, Henry, uh, Henry Ford, where he was, you know, his quote about, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And of course, yep. you know, his genius was that he didn't want a faster horse. He wanted a, a completely different mode of transportation. And you need to have the people who are able to say, this is an analytic problem, present with the business leaders in order to have real success in the space. Got it. So we'll, we'll close on this note, Stan. I just want to kind of put a bow on that and, and see if I'm following you. Um, part of maybe your first point and then your last point in, in that bit of insight on your end was you know being data-driven, which I, I think often, again, is it's buzzy enough for everybody to say that they are. I think one thing that you're talking about as a key behavior of what data-drivenness looks and feels and smells like is that you have analytic people at high-level business meetings and conversations helping guide big objectives. You know, they are not guys that sit downstairs and when you throw, you know, a, a memo at them, they get started on a project. These are people that can tease out what's possible and help the business in its direction in the first place. It sounds like in, in terms of quote unquote being data driven, it sounds like that's a behavior that folks that even want to think about machine learning should already be engaging in. That's exactly right. The analytic people need to be in those meetings where, you know, meetings that may not even seem like they're something machine learning is going to come out of it, a revenue forecast meeting or, a, you know, a, a, a business unit review meeting where they're just talking about problems that they have. The analytic people need to be in those meetings yep. because that's where the problems are, are, are unearthed. That an analytic person is going to be able to say, that's an empirical problem that I can solve, even though the business person may not have identified as such. Yes, yes. Count on having those brains in the room. Stan, thanks for sharing your insights here in the Tech Emergence Podcast. I appreciate it. Dan, it was great talking with you. 
that wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives and top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com, where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category, as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.